We're going to finish up chapter 3 of 2 Timothy. Uh, Let me just say this before we dive into this, that Paul is writing this last letter, this last bit to Timothy, knowing he's about to be martyred. He's about to die for his faith, and he knows it. He's in prison. He's locked up, and all the appeals are over. And he knew that he would soon face death. And that's reason a little bit later in chapter 4, he's going to say, the time of my departure is at hand. He knew uh, that he was about to go to be with Jesus. So beginning in Timothy, he was concerned about false teachers, uh, preparing the church at Ephesus, helping Timothy in every way. But now he's kind of concluding the final thoughts that he has to say, okay, if, if, if I just have a few days to live, what would I say to the people I love? And, and I ask you the same question. If you had just a few days to live and you knew it and you were facing execution for your faith in Jesus and you wanted to write something to your family that they would remember and it would impact their life, what would you write to your family? What would you say? What would you emphasize that would hold them over? One of the things that Paul talks about in this short passage, we're just going to cover 14 to 17, chapter 3, finish up chapter 3. This is one of the prime, primary subjects that he felt like they needed to hear. So let's pray as ask the Lord to speak to our heart. Lord, help us to understand where Paul is coming from and then not just what Paul wanted to say to Timothy, but what you wanted to say to us. Help us, Lord, to understand with ears led by the Holy Spirit, a heart opened by the Holy Spirit. Help us to hear, Lord. We bless and honor you, Lord. And thank you for your faithfulness in Jesus' name. Help me, Lord. I need your help. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, let's read this last portion of Second Timothy. He said, but you must remain faithful to the things you have been taught. You know they're true, for you know you can trust those who taught you. You have been taught the Holy Scriptures from childhood, and they have given you the wisdom to receive the salvation that comes by trusting in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is inspired by God and is useful to teach us what is true and to make us realize what is wrong in our lives. It corrects us when we are wrong, and it teaches us to do what is right. God uses it, the Word of God, to prepare and to equip His people to do every good work. And I want to say this, and this is important to realize, the Scriptures, when it says all Scriptures inspired by God, and He's talking about you have been taught the Holy Scriptures from childhood, He's not talking about the New Testament. You understand that? The Old Testament is what really prepared the world and the Jewish people for the coming of Jesus. Everything about the Old Testament was preparation for the salvation of the people through Jesus. They were able to use 
passages from Isaiah. They were able to teach about faith, that our relationship comes by faith, by teaching about Abraham. Because Abraham was not made righteous by his act of obedience to circumcision. He was made obedient because he believed in God and it was encountered unto him for righteousness. So everything, all the principles that Jesus brought were there in the Old Testament. And the more you go through the Old Testament, the feast and the tabernacle and everything that happened in the Old Testament was all preparing God's people to receive Jesus. And so when he talks about Scripture, he is talking primarily, at least from his frame point, uh, his frame of mind and his understanding, he was talking about the Old Testament. But now we have the blessing of being able to have the Old and the New Testament. The Old Testament was talking about what's about to come. The New Testament is what has come. Who is the Savior of the world that the Old Testament kept referring to as the Messiah? And so it's not by chance, but it is specifically anointed by God that Paul would encourage Timothy about the Word of God. He said, Timothy, you need to remember that we are made right and kept right, and we are led into a relationship with God through the Word of God. It is the Scriptures, the Word of God, that leads us. And then that first statement there in verse 16 is so powerful. All Scripture is inspired by God. In the Greek, uh, it literally means all Scripture has been God-breathed. God breathed life to the Scriptures. Very similar, uh, if you look at Second Peter uh, chapter 1, again, talking about how the Bible is inspired by God. And, and Second Peter chapter 1, verse 20 says this, it says, Above all, you must realize that no prophecy in Scripture ever came from the prophet's own understanding. And you know, this is not just some somebody, a man just made it up. Or from human initiative. No, these prophets were moved by the Holy Spirit as they spoke from God. There's that same idea, God breathed. This is the breath of God moving by the Holy Spirit into the lives of these prophets. And they wrote the things that were inspired by the Holy Spirit, meaning... The Bible does not just contain the Word of God. The Bible is the Word of God. It is the breath of God to us. Now, here's the thing. If the Bible is the Word of God, and if we believe the Bible is the Word of God, we should really live the Word of God. It should impact our life. It overrules everything else. It changes the way we act. It changes the way we interact. And so if we ask ourselves, how do we know? Because you're going to come up with opponents. You're going to come up with people who are scoffers. And they will say, how do you know the Bible is the Word of God? And that's really what I want to talk about tonight is how do you know? How do we know? The Bible is the Word of God. And the first thing here is very simple, and that is because the Bible is inspired by God. It is God-breathed. It is something that 
the breath of God, literally, I guess you could almost say it's not only inspired, it's expired. It is the expiration, the breath being expired out of God into the hearts of men. And then they wrote, led by the Holy Spirit. You know, how many of you have ever spent some time with the Lord and just said, Lord, speak to me, and then wrote? How many of you ever done that? Maybe maybe in a journal, uh, or you just got a notebook and said, Lord, speak to me, speak through me. And then allowed God, by His Spirit, to just begin to write what you feel like God is speaking to you. A powerful time. You know what it does? It gives God the opportunity to speak to you and speak through you and then have a record of it. So I would encourage you, if you've not done that or you don't do that, I encourage you to do that. Every message that I prepare, I I write it out, longhand writing it out, because and when I start, I say, Lord, speak to me and speak through me and help me even anoint my words as I write these words. And I believe for the inspiration of God. And then you go back and you look at that and you make corrections and you change and and God helps you to kind of clean that up a little bit and, and to understand what God is saying. So the very first reason why you know the Bible is the Word of God, and that is it's inspired. That's what the idea there, it is God-breathed. It is given by inspiration of God. Um, And then number two, how did we get the Bible? That's a question that a lot of people um, come up with, and they wonder how, how in the world did you come up with the 66 books of the Bible? Well, first of all, it, it was actually a pretty lengthy process. Um, Ezra, who was a scribe in the Old Testament, in 450 B.C., he compiled what we understand and what we have to be the Old Testament. He was a man anointed of God, and he compiled uh, Genesis and Exodus and Leviticus, and he compiled all the Scriptures. And you have to realize that um, thousands upon thousands of writings were made during those that time, books and letters, you know, that w- where people would write. So the question becomes, okay, how do we determine what is inspired of God and what is not inspired of God? Because there would be such a wealth, uh, such an enormous amount of stuff. And they developed what was considered to be canon. And the word canon is is the word for stalk or stick, uh, a reed. And what they would do, it came from actually construction. Uh, whenever they started a project, they were going to build something, they would t- go down, they would cut a, a stalk, and they would try to cut it, whoever the foreman was, he would cut it the length of his from his elbow to his tip of his finger. And that's considered to be one cubit. And so we had cut that stalk or piece of reed that long and it would be marked and usually he would put his name on that. And that stalk would be called canon, meaning this is the measurement by which everything else is going to be measured. This is going to be the measurement for this project. And if I want something that's going to be 42 cubits, then we're going to use this measuring stick and we're going to measure 42 lengths of this stalk. And that's going to give us the distance. 
in a spiritual sense, they determined they needed something that would be a measurement, something that would be a way of gauging uh, and saying, okay, this this meets canon or this meets the measurement, this doesn't meet the, uh, the measurement. And so what happened is that um, they began to, they really pretty well took what Ezra compiled, the 39 books of the Old Testament, uh, they, they got those and they had a council and uh, I believe it's called Jamnia in 90 AD and they agreed that those 90, those, excuse me, those 36, 39 books of the Old Testament that Ezra had compiled were primarily the ones that needed to be uh, and they all met the criteria so they accepted that in 90 AD. Then came the task of saying, okay, what is going to be from the, what is going to be New Testament? What is going to be after that? And so they considered uh, actually four things uh, that would determine canon in the New Testament. First of all, it would be the author and his place in history. Uh, it would, they would consider what he wrote. They would consider the accuracy based upon uh, the multiple copies that they had. And then they would also consider the acceptance of that particular writing by the spiritual leaders of that day. So those were the four criteria that they began to meet. Uh, I believe it was in 330, when was it? Um, yeah, 397 A.D. when they met at the Synod of Carthage and all these leaders got together and said, we've got to determine what is. Um, and they began to determine that. You know, and here's the amazing thing to me about the Word of God. It's unique, it's supernatural, and it, what's, what makes it so special, because the Bible is a special book. Think about how we got the Bible. Uh, first of all, over 40 authors, different authors, uh, three different continents, Asia, uh, Europe, and uh, Africa. It was written on, it was written in different places, uh, it was written in tents, it was written on an Isle of Patmos, it was written in jail, it was written all kinds of places, written uh, over a span of 1,500 years, and then it was written by all kinds of authors, doctors and prisoners and, and uh, you know, all kinds of, you know, theologians, but fishermen all kinds of different kinds of people. And here's the amazing thing. Written over 1,500 years, 40 authors, and yet no contradictions. It is amazing. I mean, if we all got together and tried to write one thing, all in one time in one place, we would have a hard time coming up and agreeing on the same thing. Uh, just because it's difficult. And yet God did it over a span of 1,500 years with no contradictions. And, and the amazing thing is that the amount of manuscripts was, was the key thing in determining the New Testament. You know, all those writings, all those letters. And let me just give you an illustration of the comparison because, again, there were a lot of writings at that time. Let's look at some of the manuscripts uh, the comparison. First of all, I believe the first one would be the Iliad uh, by Homer, a well-known writer of that time. There are 643 manuscripts. And when I say that means copies of the same thing 
that are accurate. So 643, that's, that's the most except for the New Testament. And then the next one that you have um, is Aristotle wrote a book called Poetics. There are 49 manuscripts. Uh, the oldest uh, is 1,400 years. It was written 1,400 years after the original. And there are 49 manuscripts of Aristotle. The next thing that we have, that kind of illustration, uh, the Galaic War was written by Julius Caesar, only 10 manuscripts. That was written 950 years after the original. And then the next one, we have the New Testament, 5,500 manuscripts of the New Testament. And the amazing things, it's, their oldest is within 100 years of the oldest. And the huge amount of manuscripts, and when I'm talking about manuscripts, they would throw away a, a manuscript if it had any contradictions or any mistakes in it. If there was any, and that's what made these scribes, it had to be a pretty particular person to be a scribe. That was a person who day and night copied. Day and night copied. And if he made a mistake, he would throw that away and he would start over again. We're not talking about pen, printing press. We're talking about writing it out in longhand, in Hebrew or Aramaic, whichever, uh, or Greek, whatever the language was they were, the writing was. And amazingly, there is no book in all of history that has the n- amount of manuscripts and just think, not only was God, God breathing about, not only was he breathing uh, the scriptures, but he was preserving it. For God to preserve, now actually after the 5,500, they, they found about 300 more, and now the number is up to about uh, 5,800, 50, 5,837, something like that, actually the final number. Uh, after this was uh, the, these figures were were like I can't remember back in the 40s, but there have been some more. And then one of those is y'all have heard of the Dead Sea Scrolls. You know, one of the amazing things about the Dead Sea Scrolls: some young shepherd found uh, the Dead Sea Scrolls. Do we have a picture of where he found these things? Now, actually, Vicky and I and a couple of we went. We actually were there. We didn't. They didn't let us go in the hole. You know, I would have gone in there. You know, my wife wouldn't have. But I would have gone in there if they'd have let me. But uh, it's that one over on the far right, that hole, that cave there on the side of the mountain. The young uh, shepherd boy went in there and found the Dead Sea Scrolls. Uh, and, you know, one of the amazing things, the entire book of Isaiah was found. And not... Now, again, we hadn't, we hadn't found... Um, any writings, any scriptures for over a thousand years. And when they found this in 1947, they found it. And there were several Old Testament writings, several New Testament, but they were partial. But they found the entire book of Isaiah, which was 1,500 years old, and there was not one single mistake. Amazing. I mean, it's just, it's, it's just mind-blowing how God preserved that into modern day, 1947 would be considered modern day, just one more way of God saying, I want you to understand, this is a God-breathed document. This is not a normal book 
written by man. This is a book written by God, moved moved in the hearts of men. And the other thing that I would say is, is that the Bible, um, it's it's proven to be scientifically correct. Uh, you know, there are a lot of things in the world uh, that science has kind of come up with uh, that the Scripture has proven, you know, science finally comes up with, <laughs> with the understanding, uh, but the Scripture already had it. Uh, you might remember the world, uh, the originally they thought the world was flat, and actually what they believed was there was, there was this huge foundation uh, and this foundation, the world rested on that foundation. And actually, look if you would at the scriptures. Uh, it's in Isaiah 40, verse 22, that shows you the world is not sitting on a foundation. Uh, first of all, it says in 22, God sits above the circle of the earth. The people below seem like grasshoppers to him. He spreads out the heavens like a curtain and makes his tent from them. And then the other verse um, is in uh, Job 26, verse 7. It says, God stretches the northern sky over what? Empty space and hangs the earth on nothing. So they didn't have to wonder if there's big foundation underneath there. God says, no, God just hangs it. And how does this huge earth hang on nothing. And yet that's God who created the heavens and the earth and all the planets circling and spinning and in in an orbit and yet not just falling. And that's because God created the heavens and the earth and he created the earth to be inhabited by mankind. Uh, again, he, he, he said, consider the circle of the earth. Right there, we know it's not a flat thing sitting. And it used to, actually, originally, they said the earth was sitting on a big turtle. And there was this big turtle, and, and the earth was sitting on top of the turtle. That's not true. It's hang. You know, you know that. Uh, how would the turtle eat? I mean, after all. I mean, that, that tells you right there, it'd have to eat. Uh, the other thing um, about the scientific part, and that is, uh, before there were telescopes, before... Uh, we could telescopes and look at the stars. Look what God said about the stars to Abraham in Genesis 22:17. He said, I will certainly bless you. I'll multiply your descendants beyond number like the stars in the sky. God said the stars, he was saying, Abraham, the stars are beyond number. Now, with a natural eye, you look up there and you think, hold it there. I can count those. There's one, two, three, four. You know, you can count the number of stars. And yet God said it's without number. It's beyond number, and I'm going to make your descendants beyond number, uh, more than you can even comprehend. And then when telescopes were developed uh, years later, then they were said, oh, my goodness, there are millions of them. There are billions of stars, you know. Yet God knew that. Even though our earthly eye couldn't see that, God could, God knew that already. Another one, uh, just recently, within the last 40, 50 years, uh, they have discovered that they're actually ocean currents. Uh, Psalms 8, uh, verse 8 says, The birds in the sky, the fish in the sea, and everything that swims the ocean 
currents. Actually, God told us that they were ocean currents before the scientists figure out that there were actually currents in there. Uh, and then, obviously, the rain cycle. Y'all remember studying the rain cycle in science in, in class? Look what God's Word says. He already knew about all of this. It's in the book of Job, chapter 36. He says, he draws up the water, vapor, and then distills it into rain. The rain pours down from the clouds, and everyone benefits. So before we science figured out there was a rain cycle and how the water and the mist distills and goes up into the clouds and then it comes down in rain. Before we figure that out, God already put it in the Word of God. And then one of my favorite ones is, uh, remember the story of the Egyptians? And they, uh, they wouldn't let the people of Egypt, uh, people of Israel go. And most of you know they... Uh, let them go, and then when they got to the Red Sea, then Pharaoh decided that he didn't want them to go, and he came after them, and God opened up the Red Sea, and they, the people of Israel went through on dry ground, and then about the time Pharaoh came in, look what it says about Pharaoh. It says, and he took off their chariot wheels. This is in Exodus uh, 14:25. He took off their chariot wheels so that they drove them with difficulty. And I'd have to say, that's pretty difficult to drive without wheels. And the Egyptians said, let's flee from the face of Israel, for the Lord fights for them against Egypt. You know, when you're chasing someone and the wheels start coming off your chariots, you know you're having a bad day. Especially when you're looking at this huge you know, ocean on both sides of you, and then it comes rushing in on them, and they all drown. And a lot of people say, oh, that's, you know, that's just Old Testament fairy tale. But actually, it was about, I think it was about 15 years ago, actually 16 years ago, they began to do archaeological studies and looking where would be the best place for Israel to cross the Red Sea, and they did some, you know... Uh, underwater, looking around, trying to find any evidence that that actually... And, you know, they actually found a portion where they believe. And they found this whole area. This is just one. They took five or ten. I, I saw five or ten different pictures. But they believe these are actually the wheels uh, at the bottom of the Red Sea that were that God said it came off. Uh, and, and they're still there. It's amazing. Like God preserved them after all these years. And over and over and over, God preserved and and proved that the Word of God is true. And my question to you is, what will you do with the reality that the Bible is real, that the Bible is the Word of God? Because to me, if the Bible is the Word of God, then everything he says about Jesus is real. Let me just ask you a question. If some guy comes up to you and he says, why in the world do you believe the Bible? What are you going to say? What would you say? That's an old dusty book. It's old. I mean, why would you, why would you believe the Bible? What are you, what are you going to say? Because believe me, at some point you're going to be challenged about why you believe the Word of God. What are you going to say? Just one at a time now. Come on. Yes. 
And to me, our personal testimony, life changed, is one of the validities of the Bible. It's one of... What other book has changed so many people's lives? And whether you can quote how many manuscripts they found or anything else, you can say, I'm a changed person today because of Jesus Christ. I love it. Absolutely. Great answer. Freddie, what would you say? Yeah, that's exactly right. So I believe it's proven scientifically, but it's proven historically. Uh, If you study the events that other history books have told us about history at that time, everything in the Bible coincides and is not contradictory. It all flows in there. The kings, the order of the kings, all of that uh, is amazingly accurate. So again, it, it is a not only is it an amazing, you know, it's the number one seller of all books in the entire world, and it has been since records began. And there's really not any other book that even comes close to the amount of Bibles that have been sold, bought and sold. I mean, it's just like a thousand times greater Uh, than any other single book. That right there tells you that millions of lives have been changed and that it's not just a dusty old book. It is historically correct. It's scientifically correct. And what he said back there, and that is, lives are changed through the reading of God's Word. What else would you say? If somebody asks you, why do you believe the Bible is true? Ben, what would you say? Yeah, and and just if you took one script, one prophecy, the chances of that happening when it's prophesied, say, 1,500 years or 700 years before it happens, then it happened, the probability of that is astronomical. But then take all the prophecies that have been prophesied and have come to pass so far, the odds are not even even possible to put into numbers. It is because it is God-breathed. You know, and, and I, I, ta- I taught a message the other day about the unseen realm and how we are in the seen realm, but there's an unseen realm that we don't understand, that we can't get into uh, except through prayer. But consider this, in that realm where God works and angels are and the Holy Spirit works, In that realm that we can't really get into, there is no time. That the distant future and the distant past are all the same. That's why God can look back a thousand years back and look ahead a thousand years and it's all the same to him. Because in his dimension, time really doesn't exist. That's why he said, I am. Not I was, I am. 
Uh, and, and we don't understand that because we're so time-oriented. Because we live in a time-oriented realm, but God doesn't exist in a time-oriented realm. He is. And that's the reason He looks ahead and all the scriptures that He has spoken. And I, I believe we're seeing some of the things about some of the nations realigning themselves and things going on in Europe and South China Sea and some of the things happening even in North Korea. Uh, you know, God is bringing things to a place where I believe Scripture is going to be fulfilled. There's some things that are on God's timetable. How many of you know what significant event this year is considering concerning the nation of Israel? Anybody know? What is significant about this year, in fact, this month, um, concerning the nation of Israel? Anybody know? It has to do with the word, the number 50. Well, kind of tied into that. Um, yes, this is the year Jubilee for the Jerusalem. Jerusalem became the capital. They regained Jerusalem by that war in 1967, in May of 1967. And it was then that they were able to have their capital, Jerusalem, once again after 2,000 years. Now, they actually became a nation in 48, uh, but they didn't have Jerusalem until 1967 in the Six-Day War. And they got it in May of 1967. And now we are 50 years, which is the year of Jubilee. Now, is something amazing going to happen in May of this year? Because of that, I have no earthly idea. But I do believe that God honors the 50 because it is the year of release. It is the year of release of debt. It is the year of release of bondage. Uh, and what God is going to do in that relationship or in that, I have no way of knowing. I just know that it is significant that we are living not only in that year, but this is actually the month of May. I believe it was May, I want to say 27th or something like that, when he actually, uh, the Six-Day War took place and they took over Israel, uh, took over Jerusalem. So anybody else, what, what are you going to say about the Bible? How, how has the Word of God changed your life? Yes, Ms. Cobb? My life. I like that explanation. It is our life. Uh, you know, notice, notice where we started out in Second Timothy. It is good for us. It is profitable for us. It helps us. It rebukes us. It corrects us. Well, that's the ouch part. Y'all have ever read the Word of God and it, it was ouch. That hurt. See, you're supposed to change your life to meet the Word of God. Not try to change the Word of God to match your life. And that's what some people do. They, they want the Word of God to be, to match their convictions and their ideas and their thoughts and their preferences and their political views. They want to change the Bible to match their experiences. I never will forget one of my rude experiences uh, with another pastor that 
told me that he did not believe in healing. Uh, And I said, how possibly can you not believe in healing being a pastor? And he says, well, he says, I've been uh, I have a problem with my leg and I I limp and I've limped and I've had a problem with my leg for I don't know how many years it was. And he said, if God was a God of healing, he would have healed me a long time ago. And since I have not been healed, then God is not a God of healing. And I said, you're looking at this wrong. I said, you are trying to interpret the Bible based on your experience. I said, no. I said, the Bible explains our experience. And just because you haven't been healed doesn't make the word of God invalid or untrue. You know, it lines us up. And that's what Timothy is trying to say, what Paul is trying to say to Timothy. All Scripture is God-breathed, and it's good for us. It corrects us, but then the latter part, take that, uh, uh, Chuck, put that last part of Second uh, Timothy up again, uh, those 14 through 17, if you would. Can we go back? To, yeah. All Scripture inspired. Yeah, all Scripture inspired by God is useful. Teach us what is true to make us realize what's wrong in our lives. It corrects us when we're wrong and it teaches us to do what is right. And I love verse 17. God uses it to prepare and equip his people to do every good work. And it should step on your toes when you do something wrong, when you say something wrong, when you act the wrong way. The Word of God should correct you. It should chasten you. And then we should change because God's Word tells us. You know, if I treat my wife unkind i get mad at her and raise my voice and lose my temper or something i don't need for her to correct me the holy spirit will get on my case immediately and bring great conviction to my heart and say renee go right now and apologize but lord she was wrong that's not the point you never to treat your wife like that. And that's the way the Word of God is. It corrects us if we're wrong. We lose our temper. If we get mad or we, we do whatever, you know, do some things we shouldn't do, God's Word corrects us and His Holy Spirit will show us. And sometimes we'll be reading Scripture. Sometimes the Holy Spirit will just speak to us. But this is what it's trying to say. All Scripture is inspired by God. It's breathed by God, meaning it's good for us even if it hurts. How many of you would be willing to say, Lord, step on my toes if necessary? Well, I saw most of the hands. I didn't see everybody's hands. Maybe you're considering it. <laughs> Let's stand. Let's pray. Let's ask God to step on our toes through the word of God if need be. Sometimes it's just encouragement. Sometimes it just teaches us how to do it right. But be, we need to be willing to say, Lord, speak to me. Lord, I just pray tonight. I pray for every individual. I pray for myself. Lord God, step on our toes. Correct us in whatever way you need to, Lord. Help us to live your way. Considering that your word is inspired by you and that 
the word of God is God breathed. You breathed it. And this is truly your word to us. Considering that, Lord, help us to live our life according to your word. And we believe, Lord, that it is profitable. It is good for us. Helpful to us. Help us to live according to your word, O Lord. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.